What does it mean to be powerless? How can admitting powerlessness give you power over the unmanageability of your life? Doesn't that seem contradictory somehow? Welcome to episode 160 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Tony, Lucy, Elaine, and Michelle. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Tony, Lucy, Elaine, and Michelle for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During the show, we would will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today. Joining me today is Tom. Welcome, Tom. Hey, Spencer. So, I thought I would start with a reading from the book How Al-Anon Works. Um, this is a description of step one from that book. It's one that we use in one of my regular meetings when we have a first step table. That is to say, when there's somebody new to Al-Anon who comes into the meeting. Step one says, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Each of our lives has been devastated by someone else's drinking. We cannot change that fact. We have been profoundly affected by the disease of alcoholism. Its effects continue to permeate our lives, nor can we change the behavior or the attitudes of those around us. We can't even put a stop to the drinking. We are powerless over alcohol. As long as we persist in the delusion that we can control or cure alcoholism, its symptoms or its effects, we continue to fight a battle that we cannot win. Our self-esteem suffers, our relationships suffer, and our ability to enjoy life suffers. All of our energy is wasted on a hopeless endeavor until there is nothing left over for attending to our own needs. Our lives have become unmanageable. So that's the, the first paragraph of, of the step one description. You know, there's a lot, of, a lot of powerful words in there for me. Devastated, profoundly affected, permeate our lives, powerless. And then it, it goes on to say, as long as we persist in the delusion that we can control or cure alcoholism, we continue to fight a battle that we cannot win. I know that that was something I certainly didn't understand. I thought that I could do something about the alcoholic drinking of my loved one. I thought I could somehow fix it or you know, get her to change. And I was not, I was not ready to admit my powerlessness. And I think part of that comes from just the message that I as a, a a boy and a man particularly got, uh, which is that I'm supposed to fix things. I'm supposed to be in charge and I'm supposed to be able to do anything. And so for me to admit that I, there was something I couldn't do, uh, felt like a failure. How about you, Tom? Why do you find it, or did you find it difficult to admit powerlessness? Uh, yeah, definitely. It was difficult for me, I think mainly because I think in order for me to admit that, I I had to admit some other things that were going on inside of me. Like um, I I think that I had to feel that I didn't have power. Or I wasn't st- strong in all areas. Um, I felt like if I was weak in one area, I had to be weak in all areas. So it was conflicting with my ego. I, ha- I have an ego, and mm-hmm. it presented an, a problem. 
Um, it took a lot of understanding on my part. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that grows deeper and deeper the longer I am in the program on, on what exactly that does mean. It doesn't mean that I'm, that I lack power completely. And it doesn't mean that I lack power in all areas of my life. There's a specific area that has uh, gotten to the point it's, that it's affected a lot of areas of my life, though. Um, mm-hmm. And it hasn't always been like that. But, um, you know, for the program, I'm seeking to uh, really have a deeper understanding of what that means means in my life and, and to have a, a kind of a daily application um, of that. Okay, I want to continue with the reading here. Whether or not we live with active drinking, life is unmanageable whenever we lose perspective about what is and is not our responsibility. We take offense at actions that have nothing to do with us, or we intervene where it is inappropriate and neglect our legitimate obligations to ourselves and others. Our misplaced concern for others becomes intrusive, meddling, resented, and doomed to failure. Instead of helping those we care about, we demonstrate a lack of respect for them and create discord in our relationships. When our preoccupation with others distracts us from our responsibilities to attend to our own physical, emotional, and spiritual health, we suffer. Our health and self-esteem decline. We become incapable of accepting reality, coping with change, or finding happiness. Our lives fly out of control. That, I think, captures, you know, I didn't, I didn't understand what was happening when things, were, things got, were getting really bad. All I knew was that, yeah, my life was out of control. I don't think I necessarily could have even put it into those words, but the the discussion in the in the reading there about preoccupation with others distracting me from myself, I have come to to realize that my life basically became controlled by whatever my loved one was doing. Uh, if my loved one was not doing well, then I was not doing well. If she was doing okay, I was doing okay. And I, and I really had lost all sense of my own life. And this is, I think this is one of the ways in which living with, in this case, active alcoholism in particular, uh, made my life unmanageable because I didn't have any way to understand what was happening to me. And I didn't have any way to, to change the way in which I reacted to, to act differently because I was doing what I thought I had to do and I didn't know anything different to do. How do you find unmanageability coming into your life, Tom? I always look at chaos like a storm. Sometimes I feel like I'm in the eye of the storm where it's kind of like it's kind of calm and I don't realize that I'm in a storm is what I'm I guess that's what I'm saying. It's not exactly calm. I, I see all the chaos going on and and for me growing up that chaos was normal. So coming into the program has uh opened up uh, a willingness to see things in a new way, in a new perspective. Um, so I actually realized that there is an actual storm going on around me, that there is chaos going around me, and it's actually um, very unhealthy. And it's not just on it; un- it's unhealthy for the people that are creating most of the chaos. But if I don't learn to withdrawn and use some of the tools of the program, I am actually in this storm and I'm not an observer. I'm a participant. So that's kind of the perspective, unique perspective I learned is that I've always been in this storm of this chaos. And I thought it was absolutely normal because I, for me, I I don't want to make, you know, make Mm -hmm. things generalized, but for me, 
there was some kind of, you know, the house still functioned. I still felt love from parents. I still felt some basic needs. I felt so, still felt some gratitude. I felt, I guess, some that my basic needs were met. And so, you know, that gratitude turned into something like, you know, I know all this r- really um, bad things are happening around me, but look at all this good stuff. So I would or repress a lot of that stuff. I would say this has got to be normal. I'm sure, you know, everybody else is going through that. And, um, you know, growing up in the um, type of religious house that I was, that I did, uh, there were, there was all sorts of um, other families around me that were even more extreme. And so when I, you know, talked to some of the children that were my age and found out that other homes were um, more chaotic than mine, I said, well, then mine's got to be normal. Mm-hmm. Mine's mine's more normal than theirs, you know? Um, so that definitely affected my perspective, my reality, you know, um, and how I, and how I viewed things then. And uh, it's, a big change how I, I look back now and it's not that I place blame on anybody at all. And that's pretty liberating because I definitely went through a long phase where I had placed a lot of blame on a lot of other people other than myself, but it's just more of an understanding thing for me. Okay. I'm going to read a little more. Taking the first step allows a great weight to fall from our shoulders. We let go of the losing battle we have been waging. We recognize that there is no point in continuing the fight. We surrender completely. This is no small achievement. The battle against alcoholism has become the basis for many of our relationships. Putting an end to this battle requires completely redefining what we believe about ourselves, others, and our relationships. For example, many of us have confused love with interference. We don't know how to show affection or support without giving advice, seeking to sway another's decisions, or trying to get those we love to do what we think will bring them happiness. We confuse caring with controlling because we don't know how to allow others the dignity of being themselves. Those of us who learned to control whatever we could in order to survive in an alcoholic environment now continue to try to control everything and everybody without realizing what we are doing. From past experience, we are terrified to let others do as they wish. But we only harm ourselves and others when we assist upon approaching every interaction in this way. Our relationships are damaged and our lives become even more unmanageable. Thus, even when there are no alcoholics directly involved, the effects of alcoholism continue to dominate. So we take the first step. We admit we are powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. I want to reflect a little bit on my own experience here, which is that I remember the day when without really knowing that I was doing it, I took that first step at least briefly. I was at a treatment center for friends and family day, and, and there were lots of lectures and presentations and a therapist visit and a bunch of stuff going on that day. And I had been to this sort of thing before, and it hadn't really touched me directly. I mean, I was sort of grateful for the the information they were giving. It uh, was stuff I hadn't hadn't heard before. And I actually remember going once to a, there was a, a session about uh, codependency, and I just didn't get it. I didn't understand what they were talking about. I didn't understand how it might apply to me. And when they said I I might want to consider going to Al-Anon, I was like, you know, I'm not the one with the problem here, so just leave me alone. I mean, I didn't say that because of conflict avoidant and all that. But, but this time, this day, I heard them say that I didn't cause it, that I couldn't cure it, and I couldn't control it, the alcoholism. And... 
for whatever reason, I might have heard those words before, but that day I heard them differently, and I and I really, uh, I mean, felt this weight come off of me. And it was not obviously a literal weight. I wasn't, you know, putting down some big heavy thing I was carrying. But emotionally, I just felt so much lighter when I realized in that moment that this was not my fight. That evening was when I went to my first Al-Anon meeting because in that day I realized how how screwed up my life was, and if I couldn't fix it by fixing my loved one, then I needed to find some help for myself. I thought it, maybe I'd give this Al-Anon thing a try. Who knows? Might help. What do you connect with in, in that part of the reading, Tom? I think the first time that I read this, which was, uh, well, my first, <laughs> my, my first meeting, and every time I re- I've read it after that first meeting, the thing that really jumps out to me in that, in that particular area is where it says, uh, confu- we confuse caring with controlling because we don't know how to allow others the dignity of being themselves. That whole sentence, totally foreign to me. I controlling and caring. They were controlling wasn't even in my vocabulary. I didn't try to control anybody. I cared deeply about them. It was like when I read that, a light went off. And every time I read that, the light goes off again, and it it's just kind of brings it back for me because I need to hear things over and over and over again, and I need to practice things over and over. You know, I guess I still catch myself confusing the two and that's because there are decades of this in my life that that was practiced where they were just the same thing where i was trying to um, help somebody to avoid something by instructing them on how they should be doing things Um, that's just like kind of an example you know someone relates to you a problem and then you don't relate back and you tell them what they should have done instead, even though many times, you know, for me, I never shared that experience. I had no idea what I was talking about, but I had this spot on advice. And so, and and never did I ever think that that was some kind of manipulation or control. I didn't even, the thought never occurred to me. And so that that's one part that always rings true for me. And it's kind of one of those things that now, if somebody is telling me about a problem or frustration or something, and they actually ask my opinion, I have to, that's kind of my sieve I put it through. Am I caring? You know, how do I care about this person? You know, am you know, am I, am I giving them advice about something? Am I just sharing an experience? If I, am I, so that's what I try to do more nowadays is try to go through my role ducks of experiences. And if I don't have one, I just let them know. Sometimes it still happens and, and I wish it didn't happen as much, but I'm also acutely aware of when my family as um when when that that habit and that behavior occurs as well instead of saying the words like we love you and therefore this is what we might suggest you know it's coming out and coming out as uh as advice this is what you ought to have done uh, you know and and that's uh it's actually much easier for me to hear those things now because I, i i know what it is they actually think they're caring and that's that's made things a lot easier for me to hear it without being so conflicted and and create these resentments and things. So, 
Um, it's, it's, that sentence has been really a positive influence in my life. It's one that I always go back to and really like to hear again. I, yeah, I totally connect with that, that one as well. I know what's best for you. If you just, you know, if you just do it, what I think you should do, everything would be, would be okay because I care about you. And then I think about, well, how do I feel when somebody does that for me, to me? Yeah, uh, uh, maybe not quite so much. A um, little bit more reading here, and we'll be done with this, uh, with this reading. Al-Anon does not promise that every alcoholic will get sober or that sobriety will solve our problems or fix our relationships. We may never have the family of our dreams or win the love of those who have no love to give. But our program does offer us hope because it is all about change. By being honest and admitting that the power we tried to wield over alcoholism was never readily available to us, we let go of the illusion that kept us imprisoned in an endless cycle of repetitious self-defeating behavior and inevitable disappointment. It's as if we are lost in a desert, not far away as a freshwater stream, but until now we have failed to notice it because we have been chasing a mirage, an imaginary oasis that recedes whenever we approach. Only when we finally stop, take stock of what our efforts have produced, and admit that we have been pursuing an illusion, can we turn in a direction that will actually meet our needs. Likewise, when we let go of the illusion of power over alcohol and over other people, we move in a more positive, productive, and rewarding direction. We move toward hope. To me, I'm glad that that reading ends with moving towards hope, because a lot of it is pretty much like, oh, you're screwed. <laughs> and uh, and the point is that by taking this step, by admitting our powerlessness, by recognizing our, the unmanageability of our lives, we actually are positioning ourselves uh, to make improvements. I think I want to go a little bit more into the powerlessness before we get to the uh, the hope. But one of the questions I pulled out of one of my one of my Al-Anon books, it says, what keeps me holding on to the illusion that I have the power to change someone else? And, and that reading certainly talks about the illusion of control, the illusion of power. And I wonder if you might be able to reflect on that, Tom. I have some sales background uh, in my professional career, and I still um, do a lot of sales for a living. So I realize that there are things that I can say and ways that I can say things that I can almost know what the outcome is going to be. And that's a form of manipulation and control. Yeah. It doesn't mean that I always have bad intentions. And and I can tell you through the program, my the way I sell things has changed a lot. I try not to manipulate. It's more of an educator kind of thing now. As I was kind of referring to earlier, it's been a very learned behavior of mine. So this... It's it's a, it's a tough concept for me to say that I can't control something. I feel like I can. I know that I can at least, I, I feel as though that I have some, I can play a part. And I think that's really what it comes down to. It's not a true control. I can play a part in someone's decision in a direction they can go. I, I'm there, I participate. And I, I think that I confuse the two from being a participant and being there alongside and truly having a control of, uh, of, of their decision. I, th- I think that probably answers the question. Um, that's, that's what makes sense to me yeah. um, as a very learned behavior and something that I did day in and day out for 
a long time. I've been in sales since a teenager. So that makes that makes a whole lot of sense. I hadn't thought about that aspect of it, but yeah, for me, I think it was more fear and denial because of, in particular, in the alcoholic situation, fear that this behavior would continue. Uh, and that things would get worse because seemed like they were getting worse. And so I, that fear led me to deny that I was not having any effect in my head. I thought, uh, you know, I've just, I just haven't said it the right way. I just haven't done the right thing. If, you know, if I just did it right, she would understand that she needed to stop this behavior and, and, and do something different. And there's probably some ego in there, like you said earlier, uh, that I, I am this, you know, all-powerful God being, right? Uh, yeah, when I put it that way, it seems pretty clear that's not true. But uh, when when it's that little voice in the in the back of your head that's whispering to you that you can you can do this thing, uh, you know, the devil on your shoulder, I suppose, if you want that cliche, saying, "Yeah, you can you can make her change. You can really, you can." I want to listen to that voice and not the one that's saying, um, really, no, you can't because everything you've done so far has not had any effect. And when I started working step one in our book, Paths to Recovery, uh, the very first question in the step one chapter says something like, do I believe that I can change another person's behavior or control? I forget. I looked at that question and I said, well, no, I don't think I can actually control another person's behavior. And then it said, another person's drinking. And I was like, well, yeah, of course I can. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, the immediate, um, what contradiction there is that, well, drinking is behavior, right? So if I really don't think I can completely control another person's behavior, what makes me think I can control their drinking? And that was kind of, like oh yeah darn um, that was that was the first crack in my in my assurance. See, this is the thing. Like I took that first step emotionally that day in the recovery center. Like when I felt that weight come off of me and I accepted my powerlessness, but I wasn't ready to let go of it intellectually. Uh, I didn't want it to be true that I was powerless, and so I had to I had to do the work to not just feel it in my heart, but to convince my head. Uh, and so often, uh, so many other things, it's been the other way around, where I knew it in my head, but I couldn't convince my heart. But this one, it, it came backwards, which is kind of was kind of interesting. How do I know if I'm powerless over someone's behavior? Well, actually, I think that's probably true all the time. Uh, like you said, I can have I can have maybe influence, but that's the best that I can have. Certainly, as in the case of, of the drinking, if I kept trying things to change it and it didn't change, uh, that's a pretty strong indication that I'm particularly powerless in that, in that area. And of course, once I st- started learning about alcoholism, once I started to understand the disease concept of alcoholism, once I saw from people's stories in open AA meetings, and I, I really encourage people who are not understanding alcoholism, I encourage you to seek out and attend some open AA meetings. Because for me, it took a while to get past sort of the particulars of each person's story, but 
after I'd been to maybe a dozen or so, I started to see the pattern. I started to see that although these were all very different people, although they all came from different walks of life, they came from different social backgrounds, they came from different religions, that the basic arc of the story was always the same. Sometimes it went lower, sometimes it didn't go so low, sometimes it was really fast, sometimes it was slow. But this this progression from alcohol made me feel good, alcohol made me feel like I could relate to other people, uh, it turned on some switch in me to I couldn't stop, and I wanted to, and things were horrible. Uh, you know, that's sort of the basic arc. Uh, and then, of course, when you go to an, when it's an open AA meeting, this is somebody who's in recovery. So then you get to hear the second part of the story, which is how they how they came to that moment of clarity, how they found recovery, and and how their life has changed now. And so that not only gave me this understanding that if if alcoholism affects all these very different people in basically the same way, then it can't be something in the way they were raised. It can't be a choice. Um, it has to be something fundamental about the way their body and their mind works that's different from the way mine works. The second part for me as, as the, uh, as the Al-Anon in the room was that these people were in recovery and some of them had gone really far down, uh, and, you know, for some of them, the end of the story was, hey, I've been sober a year and look at me, I'm living on my own. I have a job, I'm paying my rent. Uh, uh, and for other people, it was a lot, it was a lot higher than that. And it just gave me hope that, you know, my loved one would find that recovery someday and that um, she would be able to, to put her life back together. And that, that maybe... I would be there when it happened. I don't know. I guess I covered a lot of ground there about being powerless over behavior, being powerless over drinking, um, and and coming to this concept of alcoholism as a disease. And I, th- I think I'm not. Sh- I, it's not in this reading. There's the reading in Paths to Recovery talks about how we're trying to fix a disease uh, and somebody else's disease, not ju- not our own disease, um, and that that just sort of drives the nail in on the powerlessness. How do you accept alcoholism as a disease, and how does that change the way in which you um, interact with the alcoholics in your life? That was a tough concept for me to grasp, but as I started to grasp it, and um, I'm still continuing to grasp it, but as I as I started to grasp it, I, I could look at these individuals differently and all the people that individuals that are present in my life that I believe to have a problem, um, whether they've come to that realization or not, or maybe I'm wrong. That's that's always a possibility and that's okay. But I could separate the person. I could see a separation from the person and when the disease was talking, which is weird. You know, there's a, there's, I liked how you mentioned about the open AAs. Um, there's something else that you'll hear mentioned, which is kind of the dual personality, the the pluralism of the personality mm-hmm. where they have that devil on their shoulder and they have that angel on their shoulder. And pretty soon, you know, a lot of times it's just the alcohol talking or the alcoholism, it's the alcoholic talking. It's, 
they lose themselves. And once I grasped the, the concept that this person is sick, they're not healthy. They might already be regretting what they've said, what they've done. And that might be progressing things for them and making things worse. Well, you know, that's just a couple of the things that, you know, um, that I, that I think of when I, when I encounter problems and, and issues. So it helps me create a separation. And, and from there, there's some hope mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. There's some hope from that for them as well. And, and that helps some separation from, from me as well. You know, I think of any other loved one and I haven't had to do this personally a lot in my life, you know, uh, be with somebody as they're, as they're going through some, some things, but I can remember that my dad had an open heart surgery. I was younger, but I remembered that we went to the hospital and that, um, some of my older family members were just, and, you know, very distraught, very worried. And I didn't really understand. I look back and, and the point of that story is I look back and that I was separate, um, at that point in my life. I got worse (laughs) and they were already there. It seems like, but that's the way I look at it is that this person had the problem and they were recovering and that I wasn't upset to be there. My dad had made it through the surgery and now they were recovering and that was his thing. And my part in it was that I was there and present and you know, it's not that um, I didn't really look at things like that or see that as an illustration until fairly recently. And I saw other older family members that seemed to be much more attached to this uh, thing. And I understand a little bit differently on their end too, but um, I just kind of see that as a, as a good example for me, at least to understand about uh, this person had this illness and they're recovering and I don't have to be, it doesn't have to affect me. It doesn't have to make me feel sorrow like a lot of the other people were feeling because they weren't sure if he was, you know, recovery for a person that a very, you know, older age is, it can be scary, but I didn't actually grasp that concept. <laughs> and so, um, that's just an illustration that as I, as I understand more and more about this being a disease and uh, affects, um, the people differently. Um, I can, uh, it really frees me up to not worry, to let it run its course. I can't aid an open heart <laughs> patient in their heart getting stronger. I just can't do it. You know, there are ways that I can help. And usually it's pretty much by taking care of myself. And that's, that's kind of where the program comes in for me, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I have to agree with a lot of what you said from my own experience, in particular, uh, separating person from the disease. I think I want to a uh, couple of emails from uh, listeners. These these are in response to my request for sharing on the first step. So Sarah writes, Hi, Spencer. First off, I want to let you know that I'm so grateful to have found the Recovery Podcast. It's the perfect pick-me-up when I'm having a rough day, or I can't get to a meeting or talk to my sponsor. So thank you. I'm very new to Al-Anon. I've been going to meetings a few times a week since January, and I really feel like I'm in the infancy of my recovery. I've gotten a sponsor, and we have started doing some work on step four, but I really find myself going back to steps one through three regularly. When I first came to the program, I was just at my wit's end. 
I'm married to an active alcoholic. I'm the daughter of an alcoholic, and I've come to realize that my entire family behaves in unhealthy ways, as we've all been affected by this disease for generations. It's funny. I can't quite remember what exactly made me decide to go to my first meeting. Something so monumental seems like it should be clear in my mind, but whatever it was that made me get up that January morning and go to a meeting escapes me now. I know that I left that meeting just flabbergasted at the realization that I was a huge part of the problem. I had no idea that my behaviors were an addiction all their own. My life had become unmanageable in the sense that I was having the same reactions to my husband's alcoholic behaviors and expecting a different result every time. I'm so susceptible to being sucked into the alcoholic's distorted reality that I'm left feeling crazy, though I can't quite figure out why. Thankfully, through the program and the people I've met so far on my journey, I've come to realize that I'm not crazy. Something is very wrong, indeed, and that this disease is far-reaching and recovery can often be elusive. I've also learned that my need for control is a huge factor in that feeling of going crazy. That is part of my disease. The first time I was able to admit I was powerless over the disease of alcoholism, I felt empowered. I felt like I was denouncing a demon that I never agreed to dance with in the first place. By admitting my powerlessness, I could release some of that control I needed too badly to exhibit. And by releasing that control, my hands and heart became free to receive the higher power that's been waiting for me all along. Some days, I probably need to admit my powerlessness every few hours. Releasing control has been freeing, but also terrifying. Trusting in my higher power and turning my will over is extremely uncomfortable and foreign to me, but I'm doing it anyway in the hopes that one day it will come naturally. And even on my worst day in recovery, I'm still operating at a higher level of awareness than my best day pre-Alanon. Every day, I grow stronger and more powerful in the fight against alcoholism, and it all started because I was able to admit that I was not going to be able to do it alone. Sarah G. Chicago and, and thank you for that sharing, Sarah. You want to read the one from Jerry? Jerry writes, Hi, Spencer. Thanks for the m- meeting in a pod. I'm grateful for the chance to listen during long, monotonous commute- commutes. It helps during the week when I can't go to meetings. At first, I wasn't sure I wanted to listen because I can get sleepy during these drives. You have a very peaceful voice. I haven't been uh, anything but engaged so far, but don't do one on meditation or I'm a goner. <laughs> I've been an active Al-Anon for 29 years and 9 months. I love sharing Step 1 with others. I tell of my opportunities to work Step 1 every time I find myself trying to expand my will beyond my hula hoop space. As a manager of people and living with four family generations at home, I'm frequently challenged by people, places, things, and ideas, so slips happen. I've shared with many over the years of slips as I slide in and out of exerting my power over others. What a gift I receive each time I admit it. What relief I get each time I relinquish that power. My life comes back into focus and I'm able to work on managing the important things in my life previously neglected. I live with a family member, clean and sober, addiction, and a bunch of untreated alanons, big and small. The compulsion spans multiple generations in our home, but two of us have 12-step recovery. Our home is chaotic and fun most days. Other days, anger and rage fills in and I must retreat to my room, thus avoiding overreaching my hula hoop boundaries. I wish I could every time, but I'm not always seeking my higher power. Instead, I seek lower, my own power, and hop into the fray. 
Well, those times help me remember others I've, who've given me, me the step one gift by teaching me so much. I now count on you as one of my teachers, Spencer. Thanks for letting me share. Jerry in California. And, uh, and thank you, Jerry. And I love it that we got two letters, one from somebody who was really new, um, one from somebody who's been in the program a long time. And one of the things I love about, about Jerry's letter, uh, email is that we all, at least I do, obviously Jerry does, don't always do this thing perfectly. We don't always act out of our powerlessness. Uh, and sometimes we engage, sometimes we try to exert our control, but that the program is always there uh, to bring us back, uh, to bring us back into a right relationship with our higher power. I love the the lower, lower power. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> My lower power is me. Oh yeah. Good. And one of the, one of the things I also wanted to say before, actually before we, we, we read these is I think you were talking Tom about people in your life who you see what looks to you like alcoholic drinking behavior, but they're, they're not calling themselves alcoholic. And I want to just bring us back to the first step, which says we are powerless over alcohol. It doesn't say we're powerless over alcoholism, or as I've sometimes heard it said, powerless over the alcoholic. Um, we're powerless over alcohol. It doesn't matter whether the person whose behavior, whose drinking bothers us, whose drugging bothers us, it doesn't matter whether they're an alcoholic or an addict. What matters is that because of our attempts to change that behavior, we're making our life even more unmanageable than the situation could be. Because I hear this, I hear this sometimes from people who are coming into the program. Well, I don't know if my husband, my boyfriend, my child is an alcoholic, but their drinking is driving me crazy. That's a perfect qualification for membership, okay? That there'd be a problem of drinking. And and hear different wordings and different readings, but it really it's not about alcoholism exactly. It's about alcoholic behavior or unacceptable drinking or drugging behavior that, that we come to Al Anon to recover from. Did you have uh, thoughts on either of those those emails that you want to share? Yeah. So uh, Jerry made reference twice to the hula hoop. And, oh, um, yeah, yeah, thanks. I actually heard about this hula hoop before I, I entered into the program, and I think that that concept was one that really intrigued me and uh, maybe even softened me up before I came to my first meeting because it was just such an interesting concept. So for somebody who's listening and maybe isn't clear on what we mean when we say hula hoop, could you briefly describe what that means to us? Well, for, for me, and I'm still relatively new, uh, for me, the, the hula hoop is everything that's in my hula hoop. So if I think about a hula hoop around me, there's an area of space between me and the hula hoop. And, you know, it's always going around in circles if I'm doing it, if I'm active. <laughs> and um, the things that are in this hula hoop are the, th- the things that are like my self-care stuff. So like taking care of some basic necessities is somebody's 
else's issue is that outside of my hula hoop that's you know that's one way i look at it um is this something that i need to attend to am i am i not taking care of things in my hula hoop first so those that's the way i look at it um maybe you have um uh, a different yeah, perspective no, that's really but. Good. That's- the other thing that i think about is is if it's outside my hula hoop which you know think about a hula hoop it's what uh, three feet a meter in diameter uh it's not real big it's around me, and and if I say everything inside that is 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 mine to deal with, and everything outside that is not mine to deal with, that pretty much includes everybody else and almost everything else in the world uh, is probably not mine, at least not all the time. It's just a good mental image to remind me that I take care of my stuff and I don't try to in particular control or change other people's stuff. And, and that's that hula hoop is the boundary between my stuff and their stuff because, and this gets into the boundaries topic, which we did have uh, several, several episodes about boundaries already. It's always a good topic. I didn't have, and this was part of, I think where the unmanageability in my life came from. I didn't have a boundary. I didn't have a concept of a boundary between my stuff and your stuff particularly if, you know, say we're married or you're my kid or my parent. Well, parents, okay, that's a little, that's a little iffy. But these days, as my parents get older, I'm trying to, you know, extend my boundary into controlling their behavior. And, and you know what? They don't want to be controlled. Uh, <laughs> I think I know what's best for them, and they don't always agree. That's a separate topic. And I'll probably be talking some more about that in a couple of weeks after I come back from visiting my parents. Mm-hmm. So, when I started to understand this concept of a boundary, that hula hoop was a really good visual image to make a very clear distinction between mine and not mine. And I, I think I want to uh, get into some of the solution here. Uh, I know step one doesn't talk directly about solution, but step one is the beginning of the solution. And we can talk about some of the things that we can already start to do from our, our acceptance and our understanding of this first step. And I will say, for me, the very first thing that I got, maybe as soon as my first meeting, maybe not, was this concept of letting go and letting God. Uh, except I hadn't done steps two and three, which are sort of the, the, the God steps. I didn't have a concept of a higher power yet. And so I just said, let go. Uh, when I wanted to do something to, you know, fix the drinking, I would say, no, not, not mine. Let go. When my loved one was upset about something, uh, not mine. And let maybe, unless they actually asked for help, which that's a lot further down the road, this idea that I don't have to do something for somebody if they're not asking me to do it, but just letting go. Um, was was a big first step for me. It led to less unmanageability. When I could remember to tell myself that I didn't have to fix this one problem, whatever it was at the time, my life was a little bit less, a little bit less unmanageable, a little bit more manageable. There we go, a little bit more manageable. Although you know, at the beginning, less unmanageability was 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 good enough. How about you? What what are some some things you do as you start to accept your powerlessness, um, and maybe you start to turn your attention to things that you actually do have some power over? 
Sure. Yeah. Um, I can actually relate with um, a couple of the things that you were just mentioning. Admitting I can't do something on my own gives me the belief that I need something different, at least, you know, that's how it started off for me. I didn't have the answer, so <laughs> I needed to consult, you know, that's what I thought I was doing at first was, you know, consulting a group of people to hear what they, to give me the do's and the don'ts. Um, oh, okay. So you'd come to the meeting to try to get some answers? Yeah, I wanted some answers, you know. From there, that, that led me to this, um, led me into kind of like what you were talking about, the, the second and third step there about um, um, allowing the, the idea that I needed to allow a power other than myself. <laughs> no, we're not necessarily going with greater yet. We're just going with others. And then it, it ended up turning into greater. You know, I, I realized that there, when there was one other person besides me that was greater than me because the, the numbers just add up for me. If there's six people at my table, that's greater. That's that, definitely that's greater. That is true. And uh, if anybody there has a day more than recovery than I do, that, that's greater than me too. And uh, from from that... It, it, my concept's grown quite a bit. So that's, that's one of the tools, you know, um, I can hear about the wisdom and the experience from other people that are, that are, are practicing these tools and I get to absorb some of it and, and practice to see what works in, for my recovery. And, and from that, you know, I get, um, different levels of wisdom, like I referred to. So I think it was pretty early in the program that I picked up that I could reset whenever I wanted. I could take a breath breathing, mm-hmm. that's a type of self-care, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that's reflected later in the steps, really, you know, um, maybe step 11, and that's way far down the road for some people, but it wasn't presented in this in these shares I was hearing as step 11. You know, if I heard a step 11, I'd, I probably wouldn't have heard the rest of it. I'm nowhere near that. <laughs> yeah, so this has, yeah, this has nothing to do with me, um, but it was presented in a solution. It was just like, here's what I do. And so I was very open-minded because that's what I was there for, right? I was here to, this is what I do. This is what I don't do. So I was really in tune to that. So I really, and that's something I practice nearly every day is the, the opportunity to reset. I don't see it and often reset when I could have as early as I could have. But it's much earlier than I used to. I mean, maybe there was never a reset, you know. Sometimes I could have let one thing drag on for weeks, you know. So so now I that's one of those solutions. So if I feel powerless, I can just close my eyes, take a deep breath, and kind of mentally leave uh, that room or and then come back and look at – I mean, and sometimes I look at what is my part in this why am I not an observer? Why am I involved? Did I propel this? You know, deal with that and then move forward. And sometimes you, find, I find that I actually had nothing to do with this, which is great. It's freeing. I can now concentrate on myself. I can separate the disease from the person and the things we were talking about. It really gives me a lot of freedom and and kind of like we were talking about hope. You know, um, so the hope to move forward and, and also obviously for me, it's an encouragement that the program is working in my life. And that's, uh, and that's, uh, kind of one of the other, the other steps, you know, for anything to continue to work for me, I have to see it working. So that's yeah. just a, a couple of the tools. I, I have, uh, quite a few that I, I use depending yeah. on the situation. So the, the, the reset notion, I remember, one of the things that I heard in the rooms, I mean, nobody ever, you know, 
tells you anything, right? We're not, we're not supposed to be giving advice. We're not supposed to be telling you the answers. But I would hear people share, and I would hear possible answers for me in them sharing what they did. And one of the things that I heard was that like, I could disengage if I was in a situation that was winding me up that I could, I could probably disengage from that. There's a expression we often use about dropping the rope. You know, it takes two to engage in a tug of war and, uh, you can drop the rope. You can walk away. And we used to get in fights. Like, we would yell at each other. And it was always about some stupid thing. It wasn't... I don't even remember what they were about, which says something. Um, probably I was yelling at her about her drinking, and she was defending herself, you know. But um, And eventually I would get really angry, and I would, like, stomp off and slam the door and stuff like that. And what I learned from listening to other people's shares was, and made probably from reading in the literature too, I'm sure was that I could leave before that I could leave without stomping. I could leave without slamming. I could say, I'm sorry, I need some time by myself and, and walk away. And it's sort of like what uh, I think Jerry said about, being able to retreat to my room, thus avoiding overreaching my hula hoop boundaries. That was not a skill I had. That was not something I thought I was allowed to do somehow. I thought if something was going on, I had to be there in it. I had to, I had to do my part. And as a friend of mine likes to add to our three C's, which I said earlier that I didn't create it, I couldn't cure it, and I couldn't control it, he likes to add, but I can contribute. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did my fair share of contributing to the chaos. Mm-hmm. And I have, to, I have to own up to that. But you were talking about reset, and this happened to me just the other day, actually. I had had, well, I'd had a very full week the week before, uh, because I'd been at this conference slash convention, whatever you call it, with thousands of people and a lot of, a lot of activity, some of it sort of chaotic, uh, I also had a lot of spiritual practice during that week, which I'll talk maybe a little bit more about in the Lives and Recovery segment, segment of the podcast. But I came back to work on Monday, and Monday morning we had uh, a regular group planning meeting, and I was just like latching onto everything and just not being happy about things and saying, oh, you you know, this is wrong. All this stuff you did last week, this is just wrong. And then I caught myself. I'm like, Spencer, what are you doing here? Um, and I put a whole bunch of the steps into practice because I did a little bit of like, wait a minute, what's happening here? Recognition, inventory. And I said, um, can I, can I say something? I said, I, I find myself in a very cranky position right now and I've been acting out of that position. And first I'd like to apologize for that and, and just say, I want to, I want to sort of start over on the, on the emotional front here and, and let's, you know, see if I can do a little better, but I want to apologize for that behavior and just taking that break 
doing that very brief amends. And I think we all just took a little breathing break. You know, one of the other people said, yeah, we're all a little bit wound up here. Why don't we just stop and breathe for a little bit? And we did that. And then we were able to come back and be and get constructively engaged instead of butting into each other's butting heads with each other. And it was, was for me just like, this is stuff that I've learned in the program that I can bring into my life. And it, it right there, it was about sort of letting go of my need to be in control. You know, the, that's the first step part of it, letting go of my need to be in control. There was other parts about inventory and recognizing, um, you know, where I was emotionally, but you know, it's a tool and, and these tools come into my life and, and I can choose to use them. And, and the more I'm in recovery, the more automatic it is to choose to use them. Um, and the faster I can pick them up when I do have a slip, like I did uh, on Monday last week. I, I sort of put a teaser at the beginning of the show here, and I want to come back around to this. How does admitting my powerlessness lead me to new power? What do you think, Tom? That's kind of one of the funny things of the program. By doing something that seems opposite, you gain that thing. So admitting po- your powerlessness in a certain situation, you actually gain power, like you said. And uh, and I kind of uh, referred to it, um, how it is for me um, earlier, where um, by admitting that I can't do this with my, the per- current perspective, mm-hmm. I need to gain another some more perspective and and for that it's grown into a power greater than myself and and thus i have power i've found a voice that's something that um i was thinking about earlier is that i've found a voice in this program i didn't feel like i had power that voice was there the whole time um so i don't always need um to carry around the table with me mm-hmm. but i can carry around that wisdom I can carry around the higher power. I can do that reset. And uh, for me, that's, that's how I've gained power through admitting powerlessness. And it, it, you know, the lack of power, I think it's, it's in the, uh, the AA big book. It's lack of power. That is the dilemma. You know, that's, that's their dilemma. And that's, that's the dilemma, you know, so by dilemma too. Yep. So by admitting that I need to seek more power, I can get it through the steps of the, through the, through the program and through the steps that are there through practicing them. Yeah. And that's, that is an excellent point. I also, for me, there's another part of this, which is I think captured in the last couple of paragraphs in the reading I did from how Al-Anon works, which is that if I'm trying to exert my power in a place where I don't have any power, then I have no energy left to actually change the things that I could do something about. So if I spend all my time trying to fix my loved one's drinking, when I finally admit that I can't do that and I let go of trying to do that, now I have energy that I can put to other purposes. I can put it to finding a way for me to live with the behavior. I can put it to finding a way for me to remove myself if that's what I choose to do. 
Um, and when I started taking advantage of the power of the program, taking advantage of the higher power that was ex- expressed in meetings the, and the higher power that I came to understand as I worked the, the further steps in the program, I could take that energy that had been trying to get my alcoholic loved one to stop drinking and I could use it to put myself in a place where I had some serenity, where I had some happiness, uh, where I was able to see what was going on around me more realistically. Uh, I think we talked about, talked about that with uh, Pat a few weeks ago, this um, one of these gifts of Al-Anon uh, episodes where we talked about seeing more clearly, seeing, um, seeing things as they really are. And, all of that came from not using all my energy to try to fix something I couldn't fix. The other thing that happened, and this is not something that is necessarily going to happen for everybody, but I have seen it happen happen in my life, uh, happen in other other people's lives, that when I stopped trying to fix, when I stopped enabling my loved one, when I started letting my loved one feel more of the pain of their behavior, they started trying to do something about it. And I can't draw a cause and effect, but there's definitely a correlation. And it seemed like for a while, every time I stopped supporting, um, she went for help. Go figure. When it came to the, the, the time when my loved one was, was ready to stop, I was still there because I had found a way to continue to live with the chaos but not in the chaos. And that, to me, was the definition of serenity. It's not that the storm isn't happening. It's not that life isn't chaotic because life is chaotic. Uh, you know, sometimes it's more than, than others. But if, if I can find serenity, I can be in that chaos without getting sucked into that chaos. I guess the phrase is calm in the storm. I can find the calm within the storm. I don't have to wait for the storm to go away because it might never. That's what giving up People say, ah, I can't give up. I can't, you know, if I admit I'm powerless, I'm giving up. Well, I'm giving up something I can't do to pick up something I can do. And, and to me, that's how admitting my powerlessness, admitting the unmanageability of my life gave me power. I think you brought up some interesting concepts there. That's helped me visualize some of the things that you were just saying is that um, these things like self-control and um, patience and energy, they're all finite. So I always try to look at it like a a glass of water and I have a cup and where am I going to pour it? And it's just empty at some point. And then what happens? Um, And then I don't have any, I don't have very many other tools left. And uh, for me, that's when you were saying that, you know, I just feel like uh, I'm out. I don't have anything else, you know. And then I realized that I, 
I actually spent my precious resources on things that were outside of my hula hoop, for instance. And so that was uh, something that you spoke there and that, that really rang true in my life. And that um, I was hearing, or I, I was listening to a, re, uh, a recovery lecture, and they're the ones that brought up this finite, uh, this concept that the everything that we have is, is finite and that at some point it does reset, but we... Where where are we pouring it? What are we doing with it? Where are our resources going? And uh, and so you touched on that a, a little bit, and I and I appreciate that. Thank you. When you when you brought that up, then I thought, well, we do have. There are ways to sort of recharge energy, recharge our energy. When I'm in that franticness, when I'm in that unmanageability, when I'm trying to control everything and everything's slipping through my fingers. I don't feel like I can take the time to do the things that would give me the energy. And and an example again from last week, you know, we're in the middle of this convention, all these people, all this stuff going on. It was an annual meeting of a national organization so that we were in this business session and there was some there were some controversial issues and people were getting a little heated on both sides, not like horribly so, but there was you know, there was definite conflict. And it was being dealt with, but it it still, it makes me tired. And at one point we came out and we had, I think we had lunch and then we were going to go into afternoon workshops and, and we're both like, man, I don't know if I have the energy to do this. I don't know if I, if I can go to this workshop because I'm just worn out. So there was one room in the convention center that was marked as the meditation room. And I said, let's just go in in there and just sit in quiet for a little while. And I'm in the room and the lights are down and there's a couple other people in there, but you know, nobody's talking. Nobody's even like hardly looking at each other. Just able to sit there in the quiet. I think my wife picked up um, a piece of paper that had an intricate design on it and somebody had started coloring it. And so she started coloring very quietly and, we were in there 10 minutes, maybe, came out feeling totally refreshed. I mean, probably not totally, it's, you know, it's still been a long day, but that feeling of, I don't think I can do the afternoon was gone. Just to take 10 minutes to do that, that sort of reset, that refresh. And I think later, well, I know certainly, definitely some days, um, one or both of us went back to our hotel room and took a nap. Okay, when I'm feeling like really frantic about trying to fix something, I won't give myself the time to do the thing that would actually give me more energy to work on whatever it is I need to work on. I guess what I'm saying is that the unmanageability is kind of like feeds itself by continuing to make it so that it's hard to manage. I don't know. Um, anyway, that that was that was sort of what I thought of. Um, going forward from from your image of a finite amount, there's a, there is a finite amount, but there are also ways we can sort of put more in. Um, we have to recognize we can't keep going forever, but um, but if if we if we don't ever stop, we don't ever put more in, and we just totally run out. Yeah. After a short break, we will continue with our lives and recovery, where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives and in our meetings. 
And the first musical selection that I picked for this episode, and you can listen to all of these on the website at therecoveryshow.com slash 160. It's by the Dixie Chicks. It's called Silent House. Natalie Maines, one of the Dixie Chicks, wrote this about her nana, who has, or at the time she wrote it, had Alzheimer's. And there's another disease like alcoholism where we can totally lose the person that we knew, even when their body is present, uh, they're not they're not acting in the way that we knew them, uh, and we're powerless. So Natalie says, she said, it just seems like the worst way to end your life when you can't remember any of it. But she touched a lot of people, and we all we all remember. So this song is about that. It's okay to forget. I'll try and carry on. And I want to thank Barbara, uh, who suggested this song uh, quite a while ago, several years ago. But uh, I remembered, and I came back to it. A little bit of lyrics here. I will try to connect all the pieces you left. I will carry it on and let you forget. And I'll remember the years when your mind was clear, how the laughter in life filled up this silent house. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. What's happening in our meetings and in our lives this week, Tom? I'm still only getting to one one meeting a week. My schedule is is that that it's it's, it's tough for me to um for me to make more. What I've been doing is trying to uh, trying to open up one of my literature books at least one other time during the week is is a substitute uh, or a supplement. You know, maybe I'm not going to be able to make another meeting for a while, but I I need to try to see what is under what is in my control. <laughs> what do I have the power to do? And then I guess um, you know, I do live in a house with the chaos. I live with it. I sometimes jump in it. Sometimes I put my toe in it. Um, <laughs> this week, I you know, I, I'm usually pretty good. I'm I'm not at home a lot. So I have to, when I am home, I try to manage my time in a way that I can be present, but not involved with the chaos. It's very difficult. And this week, um, something happened where a loved one was blaming something like traumatic uh, on someone else. And I just, I got pretty involved. (laughs) And uh, I got um, I, the situation was emotionally charged, and I asked this person that's not in recovery of any sort, "What does this person really have to do with this? You know, uh, why are you angry? So so angry with this person?" And it turned into this thing where I became the angry person, and walk pacing around the house, making comments, and then I went, and I did my reset, and. I realized just how involved in this chaos, and it was a defense mechanism. You know, I saw it as that. I things got cr- really crazy, and I went on the defense, which, and then it became an offense. and And so I had to go and try my best to make that situation right. and And that's where the hope comes in because I, if I didn't have a program, I that situation would have gotten worse. It would have repeated what we've learned in our family, which is to not talk about it. We would have not talked about it, and it would probably I know on my end I would have became resentful, and 
and then then there's problems. So I went back and just I apologized for my part. I had some valid points. I said, you know what? I did a terrible job at expressing what I was trying to express. And I probably negated the entire point. And, you know, I'd be interested if you ever wanted to, to talk about it level-headedly. But if you don't want to, I completely understand. But I feel like I became the aggressor. And that was not what I wanted. And, you know, that wasn't right. And, I, you know... I hope to not do that anymore and, you know, apologized and, and, um, you know, I probably set myself back a little bit with that person and, you know, only time can fix that. And, you know, they call, um, certain kinds of amends or the, the living type mm-hmm. and, you know, carrying the al on message to others is, you know, much through living it and, um, not talking about it. And, uh, I did, uh, I did a lot of talking that day and I didn't do it in a, in a serenity, serene, um, meeting-like kind of way, and it was totally ineffective. But I can take that out. Op- I can take the opportunity in that situation to find some gratefulness and some gratitude that I had the opportunity, and that I had some tools in my tool bag, and I got to use them, and I got to illustrate what do I do now when I do something wrong. You don't have to live with me not ever talking about it and then acting normal the next day. You don't have to do that because I do this now. And you know what? We make mistakes. And, uh, you know, Jerry, <laughs> J- Jerry's uh, share there was, it was, I related a lot with that um, about living in the, the home and with all the, the chaos and only two people in recovery and several generations. And wow, you know, I could relate with that um, part of it. And, um, the only thing I can do is, is what I did. You know, I'm not perfect, but I have a new way of living and I got to illustrate it. I'd probably say there's probably one of those things that happens every week. Um, but I'm grateful for them because if I don't see the program working, I can get discouraged. So that's, that's what my, my, my week's been like. Thanks, Tom. Um, it's actually been several weeks for me, but I'm going to focus on the last week or so. It's been a busy last few weeks. Um, had various things going on two weekends in a row. I was traveling. I was busy, and uh, and so part of that, uh, part of you know, living recovery is taking care of myself, understanding what my limits are, uh, and not pushing myself uh, past those limits. and And part of those limits was that for two weeks I was not able to sort of produce a a podcast live. And so I had found a, a wonderful series of four, well, it's four sessions from a workshop uh, on the 12 steps in Al-Anon. And so uh, each of, of the last two weeks, I posted the first session and then the second session. So up through one through three, four through six. So we're up to step six and there's two more, two more in the bag that I can post later on. Uh, when when I am not able to uh, to put together the time in my schedule to create the podcast on demand, and that's going to happen, I think, in a couple of weeks because I'm going on a family vacation, visit my parents, and my brother and sister will be there, and we're going to talk to our parents about our concerns as they get older and apparently less able to take care of themselves. Uh, and we had a, uh, 
We had a conference call Friday evening, which my sister set up. I'll tell you, these you know, smartphones are a wonderful thing. She was able to call my brother and then call me and put us both together into a three-way conference call. And I'm glad she did that because right up to the moment, I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to talk about this. I just want to ignore it. I want to deny it's a problem. Even at the same time, like, I know it's a problem and we need to do something about it, you know. So that that there's a little bit of living recovery there and that I, I did show up for the phone call. Mm. <laughs> I did participate. And, and I know we have to have this conversation that I really don't want to have because conflict avoidant. Uh, you know, when we tried to bring some of this up with them, they're like, oh, we're fine. Not a problem. Don't want to talk about it. Gee, I wonder where I learned that conflict avoidant from. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anyway, enough said about that. So uh, you'll have an opportunity to hear some more of uh, of Ellen and, and her Stepping Stones to Serenity workshop coming up in the next couple of weeks. Earlier this week, I sent out a text to several people saying, hey, how'd you like to do podcast on first step this Sunday. And two people responded saying, you know, I, I really need to, to take care of myself. One person said, I've, I've done a lot of Al-Anon service this week and I don't feel I have the energy. And, and I kind of jokingly said to myself, man, I hate it when people take care of themselves and understand where their boundaries are and are, are willing to enforce them. <laughs> where are those codependent people who always say yes, you know? Right but it, here. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, a, a little bit of laughing at myself there, I think. Uh, the big thing for me in the last week was was going to this annual meeting of my faith tradition with, uh, I think, almost 4,000 people registered. Uh, and Sunday morning worship with 4,000 people, and it is pretty amazing. Uh, I can understand some of the appeal of these mega churches when you get that many people raising their voice in song and that many people just breathing together. It's just, it's amazing. But it was, it was five days. We got there Wednesday, we left Sunday. So I guess basically five days. Um, and every day I got up early. Uh, there was a seven o'clock spiritual practice different every day because it was led by a different person every day. Uh, one day we stood in a circle and sang. One day we did a, um, a mindfulness meditation and and a couple others and and that helped me to sort of get myself ready for the day ahead because I chose to do that I wasn't able to do the early morning exercise routine that I do when I'm at home you know I mm-hmm. took my I took my exercise clothes the the hotel we were staying in had a uh, an exercise room of some sort I'd never even saw it uh, I had to make a choice, and that was the choice I made. When I came back home, first time I I went for a run this week, I was kind of sore. <laughs> like I am out of shape. I I didn't do this for a week, and I'm I'm feeling it. Uh, and it just reminds me that that I have to balance things in my life. If once every I've been to this this meeting about well three times in ten years, so. It's not something I do every year. Uh, and when I'm there, I want to take advantage of what's there, and I think that's reasonable. Uh, we also, uh, both of us attended a recovery worship, which was cool. Um, there were meetings uh, in the in the convention center. Um, 
we didn't make it to any of them, but didn't so much feel the need. I was, we were getting, I think we were getting a little antsy towards the end of the week, but as, as I said, we were also taking care of ourselves, taking naps, going, going in the meditation room when we needed to, that sort of thing. Really taking care of myself, setting boundaries. So it was one, there, there are so many choices. Every, there were these workshop blocks and every time there was at least like 10 different workshops, probably two or three of which I really wanted to go to. And several of which I was like, that would be interesting. Uh, I, you know, I have to tell myself I can't do everything. I can't necessarily do all the workshops in a day. Maybe I need to take a nap. Uh, so making choices, determining, you know, what's really important uh, and, and setting those boundaries. One evening, some friends are like, hey, we're going out to this nice restaurant. Y'all want to come with us? And I said, well, are you going to be back in time for the evening worship? And they're like, no. I said, no, then I'm not going. You know, we're going to go get get dinner somewhere nearby so we can be back. Um, that particular one I really wanted to be with because it was a, uh, the service in which the graduating seniors got welcomed into the adult community. And I knew a bunch of them. I wanted to be there, see that happen. I had to make a choice. I had to set a boundary on. I was not going to try to go to dinner and rush back and and not enjoy dinner and not enjoy the worship. Um, this is something that I've learned in this program. Not try to that I can't do everything. Uh, that was not the way I was before coming to Al-Anon program. I wanted to do everything, and I was pretty sure I could do everything. And in consequence, I was always late for things. I was always giving things short shrift. Um, and, and I have to learn to say no, and I have learned to say no. The other um, interesting thing that happened was that um, a particular group that um, doesn't agree with some of the philosophies that we have uh, came to demonstrate against us. Um, this is a group that uh, tends to spew hate all over the place, and they came with all of their signs with particular lifted quotations from the Bible showing us how we were all evil and we were going to hell. And there was one that I still don't understand because I don't remember the Bible verse and I haven't, I didn't, didn't even want to look it up. It said, you eat your children. And, and they came and they had their signs and, and I think they were saying things, but what we did was, um, and this was very carefully planned to be non-confrontational it was about, I think, ended up being about 200 people, um, and we had some people who had um, angel wings that they were wearing that stood in front of the protesters, between us and the protesters, and we went out and we sang to them, and we told them that we loved them, and they left, and nobody got into a fight, um, nobody got hurt, and it was an amazing experience to to just be there to, I don't know, I, I don't know how to, 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 you know, to love them till they left. I mean, you know, um, I don't expect that what we did is going to change their minds about anything. That really wasn't the purpose. The purpose was to say, we can take your hate and we can love you back um, because we don't have to take your hate. And I think that's a very um, recovery-oriented kind of way to be, that just because you want to give me something, I don't have to take it. If it doesn't work for me, I don't have to take it. Um, and 
And then I went on to my afternoon workshops. <laughs> it was like, uh, but it was, it was pretty cool. It was, and we made the local news, of course, as you might imagine. Uh, yeah, so it's been a busy few weeks. Um, and I've been trying to, trying to practice my program because I don't think I, I would have been able to really get through it without the tools that I've, I've learned here. So looking forward uh, I don't know what I'm going to do next week, but uh, I still have more of these gifts of Al-Anon. And so if I can find a co-host who wants to talk about this one, courage and fellowship will replace fear. We will be able to risk failure to develop new hidden talents. Sounds like a great thing, uh, a great a great gift that we get from from working the program, from, from really doing these 12 steps and all the tools that come with them. So if you're interested in talking about that particular gift, um, let me know, and, uh, and we do it next week. Let's see. In any case, we welcome your thoughts. You can join the conversation. Call us about step one. Call us with your questions. Call us with your shares. Please leave us a voicemail or send us an email with your feedback or your questions. And Tom, how can people send us feedback? You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 734 707 8795. Call us right now, 734-707-8795. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at com. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of Step 1 or any of our upcoming topics. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. Spencer, where can our listeners find out more about The Recovery Show? Well, that would be on the website, therecoveryshow.com, where we have all the information about the show, which includes notes for each episode, an occasional blog, and links to the music that we talk about. Also, we have links to other recovery podcasts and websites. And if you'd really like to join the conversation, consider being a guest host by phone or Skype or FaceTime or whatever. Uh, send email to feedback at com if you're interested in doing that. And another listener suggestion for music here. This one is Breathe, and it's by Telepop Music. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it. It's got accents and stuff. Telepop Music, something like that, I'm sure. Stacy suggested this song she wrote. Listening to this song reminds me that I don't have to fix anything right now that I don't have to do anything right now. Just believe and just breathe is all that's required of me at times. I want to thank those of you who responded to my question about recovery meetings in Columbus. And as you heard, um, I found the recovery time that I needed within the space of, of the assembly inside the convention center, including the daily spiritual practice and worship, was not able to get out to, to other meetings. I barely had time to get out to meals on occasion. Hmm. So, uh, But I do thank you for that. If I had needed them, I definitely would have found them. Uh, I know when I went to this same annual meeting a few years ago, I was in a different space in my life and I really needed recovery and I was really glad to have access to meetings. And so I wanted to, to stock up as, 
and make sure that I had something in line if I needed it. And so thank you again for, for responding. And uh, to the one person who said, I'm, I'm sorry I'm going to be out of town that week, so am I. But as you say, maybe we'll get another chance to meet. Got an email from Greg who titled it Polarity. Do you want to read that for us, Tom? Sure. Greg says, Hi, Spencer. While listening to the last few weeks of your show and to topics in the Al-Anon meetings, in my Al-Anon meetings, I have been working out a theme of polarities. Wants. I have heard stories of people so far gone into the ism that they lost touch with what they want. I've never had the slightest doubt of what I want. I could make a list of the top uh, off the top of my head on any number of topics relating to the addict. Some retreat in the face of the disease. I would always double down, engage, and tell them what they're doing wrong and how to fix it. Decision. Some say that they felt trapped and afraid. I felt to act to make things better and would never hesitate to ram an opinion, if not a decision, down her throat. All of which led me straight into the rooms anyhow. It was a very unconscious attitude where I was sure if, that if I could sensibly reason something out for myself, then it must be right, conveniently leaving me justified in my actions. In effect, self-will run riot, as my sponsor pointed out. So recovery for me is to move away from those extremes and instead quit with the lists and instead work on self-care and follow Chuck C's lead. What I need is to be of service, contributing something to life for free and for fun instead of concentrating and getting things from it. Stay inside of my hula hoop. It is not business to apply. It is not my business to apply Al-Anon principles to other people instead of insofar as they may affect my self-care. Wait for the need for any action on my part to become clear, which usually means let situations develop instead of pushing for a solution. Many thanks for your show, Spencer. I always look forward to seeing it show up in my podcast player. Best regards, Greg. And and thanks, Greg. Um, good thoughts there. And I I like the uh, the notion of polarities. It kind of um, it feeds in nicely to the uh, the section that. We've been studying in the Al-Anon Blueprint for Progress in one of my meetings where we're in this section of sort of contrasting traits. Um, and uh, and you talk about the extremes. And in that section, the extremes are usually presented as one that looks good and one that looks bad, one that's a positive and one that's a negative. But when we get into the discussion, we always find that being completely at one end or the other is probably not really where we want to be, that there's always, there's some good on both ends. And I think you kind of, you kind of pull that out in your, in your email there. Um, Got an email from Tony who writes, hello, Spencer, a short note to thank you for the recovery show. I have only recently discovered the podcast and I'm very glad that I did. The recent episode about shutting down was especially valuable and I learned a great deal and identified with much of what was said. I have even copied the list of items from the show notes and put them into my Al-Anon workbook. A little smiley face there. <laughs> in episode 157, you related the metaphor of the active alcoholic being trapped in a speeding car with the disease doing the driving. I had not heard that before, and it was, as Pat said, heartbreaking, but also a powerful and easily understood illustration of the powerlessness of the alcoholic over the illness. Thanks again for sharing your experience, strength, and hope. Yours in fellowship, Tony. Thank you, Tony. And, you know, I think both of those emails 
almost could have fit right into our step one discussion also. Yeah, perfectly. And, and finally, there's a, a comment that Eric left uh, on the website. It was on the, the first of the two Stepping Stone to Serenity episodes. You want to read that? Eric says, love this one. I'll take the starfish removal image with me today. Thanks for posting. Best, Eric B. And and I have to admit, I have to go back and listen to that episode again to, to remember exactly what the starfish image was. <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna make a guess here, which is the one about um, a storm has washed a bunch of starfish up on the beach, and there's like thousands of them. And there's a little girl going down the beach, picking them up and throwing them back in the water. And a, a man says to her, little girl, there's no way you can throw... You can make a difference for all these starfish. There's too many. And she picks up another one and throws it in and says, well, I made a difference for that one. Aww. And I think that we can, I can look at the things that are wrong in my life, whether it's you know, my character defects or something else, and I can be overwhelmed by them. But if I can look at one thing, one little thing that I can do today, I can put that starfish back in the water. Um, and leave the rest of them for another day. Um, that's what I take from that. I don't know if that's exactly what, what Ellen had to say. Like I said, I have to go back and listen to it again. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to the recovery show. We do have expenses that run about $60 a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Tony, Lucy, Elaine, and Michelle did. And thank you again for your generous contributions to keep us going. And, it's been a few weeks since I've been able to thank people. So um, I, I hope I, I think I got everybody who contributed during that time. Thanks again, Tony, Lucy, Elaine, and Michelle. And the final song selection uh, is called What Can I Do? It's by The Cores. And you can, again, you can listen to this at therecoveryshow.com slash 160. This was suggested by Ruth. She said, it's a song about being powerless in regard to another person's feeling. But I think you can transfer any other thing too and let it let it fly or let it go. To me, the, the chorus here is about where I am when I don't accept my powerlessness in a situation. What can I do to make you love me? What can I do to make you care? What can I do to make you feel this? What can I do to get you there? Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.